<clears throat> Yay, Jesus. Wow. Feels so good in here. It's like God's living room. Just feels like you can just like pass out, like just on the floor and just feel so comfy. Um, I'm just so encouraged. Um, I was just looking around even in worship and, and just looking at, it sounds weird, looking at people worship and you could just see Jesus. Just like people's history and their love for him. And I just could sense the Lord's like pleasure over us and over you. And it's just, ah, it's so incredible to me. You know, um, last week we worshiped the whole service, which is like the best thing ever. Um, and I love to hear the response from it because like, oh, that was amazing, you know, and, and the encouragement like of how much Jesus moved on people's hearts. And to me, that is the mark of what God is doing in this house. And, and I think about, you know, I often heard someone say like, you know, worship is about God and the message is for us. And, and when I say that is, is worship is unto him and telling him his worth. But something happens when we lift him up all of a sudden, like my most powerful encounters is in worship. And the time that God transforms me the most is in worship. And I think about revival history. I think about what God, the movements of God and what they've looked like. And, and, you know, all across, I think, you know, Bethel, there's something significant God is doing there. But I would say the worship has actually gone further than the message, if that makes sense. Like, most people know about Bethel and they think about the worship. And I think about other things that God is doing on the earth, you know, um, upper room and how their worship is being released and what God is doing there. And I think about the Welsh revival and Robert Evans said something. He said, people said, Robert, do you think this revival can spread? And he said, I don't know. Can the people sing? <laughs> and so, and, and there was this thing where Robert's, Robert Evans would not get up and even preach. Like if he felt like a pole on people trying to get him to preach, he would just step off the platform and they would just continue to worship. And so I think that God is marking us with worship. And I, and I want to talk, you know, I think it, God is such a genius. Like to be honest, like I have no idea what I'm going to speak about Half the time, I'm pulling out these random things that I feel impressed by, and then all of a sudden, I find God just like weaving them all together and making sense to me, and I'm like, how the heck did I get there? <laughs> and uh, I find him doing that a lot, and it's so encouraging for me because um, I, I honestly really don't feel like I know what I'm doing, <laughs> and, and I kind of, I love that. <laughs> You know, um, because I want, I want what he's doing to be his idea. I want what he's doing, you know, the good, I don't know if you guys knew this, but when this came, the goal was just to go after Jesus. It was never to start a church. And, and the goal continues to be af, to go after Jesus. And who knows what the heck this thing will look like, but he does. <laughs> And I want it to be him. I don't want it to be a good idea. I don't want it to be strategy. I want it just to be a simple, pure desire to go after him. And the reason why I know it's God and I'm so impressed by what he's doing is when I think about a service where we just worship him and everyone's so excited and expectant, I realize it's still all about him. And I want this to only be about him. <laughs> And the beautiful thing about worship is it's all about him. <laughs> and, and so I think God is doing something as we gather in worship. Because worship, I, I love what it does. It connects us to his heart. And it, it, it ushers in his presence. And what I talked about the other, a couple weeks ago is the, it says that the only one who knows What's in the heart of man is the spirit of God. And the only one who knows the heart of God is the spirit of God. 
And so what does that tell me? It tells me that as we usher in his presence, his heart, as we usher in his presence, he opens up our heart to receive something. And that's why I'm never in a hurry (laughs) and we can never be in a hurry in his presence. Because if our hearts aren't open, it doesn't matter what word is preached. It doesn't matter what we do in here. His, what he wants to do will only happen is if hearts are open. I think Daniel preached a couple weeks ago about the soil, the soil of our heart. And if our hearts are not softened by his presence, then we have no business doing anything else. Because <laughs> it's not going to work and it's not going to do anything. And so... <clears throat> I continue to talk about how we had the, in in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle, you had the outer courts, the inner courts, and the holies of holies. And with that, transformation actually occurs in the holies of holies. And so the outer court, I believe, can represent our flesh, and then the inner court can represent our soul, and then the holies of holies, I believe, represents our heart and our spirit. And so if we want true transformation, so often we're looking for true transformation to come through our flesh. We're like trying to work ourselves into alignment with him. But the only way we can see true transformation is from our heart because it's from the inside out. And from that, if the only way we can see true transformation is if his Holy Spirit reveals what's in here. And as he reveals what's in here, he, and as we have an encounter in the holies of holies where his presence is in our hearts, transformation occurs. And so <clears throat> with that, I believe the way we usher in his presence is through worship. And I want to back that up through what, I, what I've seen and also what I see in, in, in the Bible and so, I, you know, one of my favorite things to do is, <clears throat> as a youth pastor, I've done a church camp, uh, I don't know, a couple of years or so, and, and, and if I haven't done them, then I've been a part of them as a youth. And my favorite thing to see is kids come in, and especially I've gotten to work with some kids who've never encountered God, who've not heard the word, and have no grid for any of this stuff. You know, we know the stuff and we can say amen to the stuff, but they have no idea what the stuff is or what to say amen to. So they're just there. And a lot of times the way they're there is like this to start with. They're like, worship is going on and they're just like, (laughs) and you look out and you're like, God, you're really going to have to show up (laughs) or else we're just going to, it's going to be a bad week. (laughs) And so what happens though, and I see it every single time, is worship begins, and it's like this, and then the Holy Spirit starts to come, and then you start to see this shell just kind of like crack open, and it goes from like this, and and I know some of the personalities of these kids, and they're like hard, and they're tough, and they act like, you know, I never cry, you know, I, I... I'm, I'm the toughest thing. Nothing can hurt me. And all of a sudden, throughout the week, you start to see, like, the Holy Spirit just working on their heart. And then all of a sudden, it's like that foot starts to move. They're like, whoa, what's happening? Oh, my goodness. My foot is moving. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, goodness. <laughs> whoa, what's happening? And then by the end of the week, they're just like hugging on each other, crying and loving each other and encouraging each other. And it's the most beautiful thing. And it's what happens is, is the Holy Spirit is an assassin. And he is after this bad boy right here. And when he gets a hold of this bad boy All the walls are broken down and a heart is fully ready to receive. And so it doesn't matter how you show up. When the Holy Spirit in his presence is stewarded, then all of a sudden the flesh, the walls, the things that were put up start to come crumbling down. 
And then all of a sudden, you see, the reason why we put up all this hard walls and these things is because we've been hurt. But the Holy Spirit is the comforter. So what he does is he comes and he comes for this heart and he makes us feel so comfortable and so loved. And it's like he puts like pillows around our heart where all of a sudden these walls that were used to protect us, it's like, no, the Holy Spirit has my heart and I can be me. And all of a sudden hearts come alive and God starts to show up and do his transformation. And so... <clears throat> the way I often see it is through the, the way of worship. And, and the way that I see this in the Bible is through um, the Ark of the Covenant and through the leadership of David. And, and also I see it in the leadership of Saul and the differences between the two. And so the Ark of the Covenant was where the Holy Spirit or God's presence was stored, if you can imagine, in a box. <laughs> I don't think that's the place. We talked about this the other day. I don't think that's the place he wanted to live, yeah? He didn't want to live in a man-made box. He wanted to live in what he made, which is us. But back in the Old Testament, he lived in a box, okay? That's like so sad. It sounds really sad, but... <laughs> but I think that's a way that he set it up because that's the way man would receive him. And I don't want to go into that, but I did share on that the other day. And so the Ark of the Covenant was so significant because it was the box which stored God's presence, okay? And so for, for a long time, they couldn't really control the box. They couldn't control the presence, and they didn't quite know what to do with it. So during Saul's reign, he actually had it stored away because they're like, I I don't know what to do with this thing. And when David became king, the first day, David's plan for Israel was, was one thing, okay? Now, now, let me mind you, there was lots of things going on, and there was turmoil, and there was, you know, economic problems. There was fighting against different nations, but when David came in as king, his mandate, his, if you will, his inaugural address to Israel was this. Guys, we are bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. Like his plan for Israel and their success was we're bringing the presence back in and we're making it the center of what we do. Okay? And so David decides, and, and I actually want to read, and, and I actually heard this recently, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this just blew my mind um, in a message when I heard it. But in 1 Samuel 5, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, so before, and this is why there was probably... <laughs> some apprehension about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel because where the presence of the Lord was, there was such an awe and a wonder of God and there was such an alignment that people had to be in in order to be in that presence. And so there was some apprehension about how are we going to do this? And in 1 Samuel 5, um, the Philistines had actually stolen the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into their camp. You guys want to hear what happens? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yay. So, now the f starting in verse 1, First uh, Samuel 5, or First Samuel 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the uh, man, you're gonna have to forgive me. I'm probably butchering all these names. So uh, when the uh, whew, when the Shadites or whatever that is, we'll just start making up names. It rose early the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. 
So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early in the morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to, was, uh, left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashad to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the uh, Ashadites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashad and its, and its territories. When the men of Ashad saw that it was so, they said, the ark, of, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his, hands, his hand is severe on us in Dagon, our God. <laughs> so can you imagine... Now, the Philistines were the enemy of Israel, and they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in their camp, and all of a sudden, these idols are just falling face forward <laughs> before the Ark of the Covenant, before the presence of God. So the Philistines are like, oh, my gosh. So they, you know, they put him up, boom, falls off. Put him up, now his head's cut off, and his hands are <laughs> cut off. And they're like, what the heck do we do? And then now, you know, they have uh, boils, like, all over them. <laughs> And so, if you can just imagine, and, and this is what the presence of the Lord does, is, is listen, when his presence is amongst us, all other idols can't remain. <laughs> they just can't. And that's why when his presence comes, it, it's, it's all about stewarding his presence, because when his presence is Lord, there is no other Lord. <laughs> And because there's no other Lord, and because, you know, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And another way that can be said is, where the Spirit is Lord, there's freedom. Because no other idol can remain in His presence. And that's why we have freedom when we steward His presence and make Him Lord. And so the Philistines are like, all right, I don't know what the heck to do with this. They, like, give back the ark. Saul's like, I don't know what to do with it with this, and he stores it away in a barn, and so David becomes king, and David's like, I'm going to bring this ark back, and so what David does is he assembles this team and comes up with this strategy to bring back the ark, and so we're going to read about that. Now you can turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Chronicles 13. 1 Chronicles 13. You guys with me? Making sense? Okay. Okay. So, so David assembled, starting in verse 5, so David assembled all Israel together from the Shihar of Egypt even to the entrance of Hamath to bring back the ark of God from Kirath-Jerim. David and all of Israel went up to Balah, that is, Kira Jeriram, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. The Lord, who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinaba, or whatever, I totally butchered that, and Uzzah in Ohio drove the cart. David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chedon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned up against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David. But he took it aside to the house of Obadiah the Gittite. 
Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obadiah in the house for three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obadiah with all that he had. Okay. You guys with me? So, what the heck is going on? <laughs> Here David is. He's trying to bring back the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the God, back to Israel. And he initiates this plan to bring it back. And as he's bringing it back, Uzzah in Ohio are bringing it back. And the oxen get stirred. And Uzzah's trying to be a good man and tries to save the ark, and all of a sudden, Uzzah's dead. And David's like, God, what is going on? Like, I'm trying to bring back your presence, and I don't know how to do it. You can hear, right, you can see, like, why this is a frustration for David, because it's like, God, I know you're calling me to bring back the presence, but I don't know how to do it, because you just killed the guy who was trying to bring back the presence, <laughs> And so it says that David's angered. <laughs> and, and so I love the way that this guy put this in the message that I heard. And <clears throat> the name for uh, Uzzah in Ohio, the people who were carrying the presence of the God, their names were named brotherly strength. Okay, what does that mean? You know, I think a lot of the times... A lot of the times, the way we're trying to usher in God's presence, first off, do you guys not realize the presence is like the biggest controversy over all of Christianity? <laughs> if you don't believe that, just read the Bible and read history on revival. It's like, that's the biggest controversy is the presence of God. And because, and I believe the reason why that is, is because you can't control the presence of God. <laughs> and you shouldn't want to control the presence of God. And a lot of times when we try and control the presence of God, he can't really be controlled. So, so here you have brotherly strength carrying in the presence of God. And to me, brotherly strength represents I'm going to bring in the presence with my gifts and my abilities and the things that I have to offer. And, and so often, to me, brotherly strength represents this. Is, is brotherly strength, is, I associate that with like Saul, with people who don't know their identity, with people who are trying to get acceptance and value from the things that they do. They're a brother. You see that throughout. You know, I've talked about this a zillion times at this church. Like, we're not brothers and daughters. We're sons and daughters. And a lot of times, brothers and, brothers and sisters try and get their value from competing with their brothers and sisters to get the approval of the Father. And you see that through the life of Saul. Saul was like brother, like icon of brother. He was like so jealous of David. He was not even being who he was called to be. Here he was. He was supposed to be the king of Israel. And yet he, like God anointed him to be king. Yet he looked at David and had this, this fierce jealousy over him. Why? Because he was getting his identity, Saul was, from what he could do. And the epitome of a brother is you get your identity from what you do. And so here brotherly strength is, and I think so often, especially in the Western church, we're looking to bring in God through strategies, through our giftings, through our abilities, through all of these things. But I would actually like to say the presence comes not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Are you guys tracking with me? And so often... We're looking for awesome preachers and gifted people. And I would like to say God's not looking for that. Do you guys hear me? God is not looking for gifted people. He's looking for willing people. And so often, you know why I believe worship 
ushers in him in is because it's not about us, it's about him. And so, so often, so often as a church, you know, we're looking for dynamic speakers. We're looking, how can we build an awesome place where people will come? And I would like to say, it's not about that. It's about him. Listen, you don't need a place. Like, like I want to make it very clear. This is not about finding your place. It's about worshiping Jesus. We will find our placement in his house, but it comes from the Father. And, and so often, you know, it's, we can get in a trap about thinking that it's giftings. And, you know, they have the gift of prophecy. They have the gift of teaching. They have, who gives a, I'm sorry, who cares? God spoke through a donkey. Think about it. He spoke through a donkey. <laughs> Do you guys get that? God doesn't, like, it's not hard for him to speak through you. It's not hard for him to use you. He doesn't want to use you. He wants you to be a son and a daughter of God. And when you're a son and a daughter of God, oh boy. <laughs> when you know who your daddy is, you, you get all the daddy, you get all this stuff. I mean, it's like, if you're a son or a daughter of God, like, I mean, come on, think about it. A man and a woman gets together. They come together, they birth a boy or a girl. What do they look like? The mother and the father. You are born of God and God is your dad. So if God is your dad, then all of a sudden, guess what? You get access to him all the time. The only reason we would want our identity from what we do is we don't know who we are. And so what does this have to do with brotherly strength? What I'm saying is we're not going to bring in the presence of God through our giftings and our abilities. We're going to bring in the presence of God through an adoration and a worship of who he is. So David, so David all of a sudden, he's like, what the heck, God? What do I do? I try and bring in your presence through brotherly strength, and it didn't work. So he's like, I'm guessing he's praying into what do I do? And then all of a sudden, God gives him a strategy. First Chronicles 15. Now David built houses for himself, the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched pinched. <laughs> I can't say that word, pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God to minister, uh, and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all of Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place where he had prepared it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites and the and of the sons of Koath, Ural chief, and 120 of his relatives, of the sons of Moriah, Asiah, the chief, and 220 of his relatives, of the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and 130 of his relatives. Um, let's skip down. Let's see. And then we'll start in 12. And he said to him, You are the heads of the fathers of households of the Levites. Consecrate yourself, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared, uh, prepared for it, because you did not carry it at the first. The Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to his ordinance. Say his ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles and Theron, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so I'll summarize the rest. But who are the Levites? So the Levites were a tribe that were consecrated for one thing. Everyone say one thing. Everyone say one thing. one thing. Everyone say one thing. One thing. Okay. To 
minister, say minister, minister. Unto, unto the Lord. Okay, so here's this tribe. Their one thing was to minister unto the Lord. Let me tell you, your first ministry is to minister unto the Lord. If your ministry is anything other than ministering unto the Lord, you need to get rid of your ministry. No, seriously, like I'm not kidding. Get rid of your ministry if your first ministry is not unto the Lord because you don't need to be ministering to anybody else. In Revelations, Lord, we cast out devils. We did this. We did all that thing in your name. What did God say? I never knew you. So if your first ministry is not unto the Lord, get rid of your other ministries and go back to that one. Okay, so the Levites. Why the Levites? The Levites had consecrated themselves unto the Lord. Not only were the Levites a holy tribe, but the Levites were the only people when Moses went up to the tab, went on the mountain, the Levites were the only tribe who did not turn to idols while Moses was gone. Why? Because their eyes were upon the Lord. So what does it mean? How do we bring in the presence of God? We bring in the presence of God through people who have set their eyes on one thing, which is to seek and minister unto the Lord. And when we seek and minister unto the Lord, we can carry His presence wherever we go. And so... They bring in the Ark of the Covenant, and here David is. He's like, <laughs> you know, we talk about revival and how revival is messy, and, and we, like, want to formulate what revival looks like and how it appears before everybody, and we want it to look awesome. And here David is king. He's stripping off his clothes and like, woo! And he's dancing through the street, and his wife is like, dude, you're crazy. I disown you. And God's like, well... <laughs> curse his wife and so <laughs> and David is a madman before the Lord because it's unto the Lord listen what does it look like to bring revival the first ministry is unto the Lord and as we steward his presence I do believe he establishes and builds his house and he adds ministries and things on top of that. But the foundation is ministry unto the Lord. And if it is not, it will crumble because it's all unto him. It's not unto people. You want to know what's so liberating about that is this, is when it's unto the Lord, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Because everybody else, when they see revival, like, that's not God. That's not God. Well, guess what? David was unto God, wasn't he? And everybody's like, dude, you're crazy. You're a king. Do you know what you're supposed to do? And, and here revivals is like people rolling on the floor and, and flopping up and down. And people are like, that's not revival. And guess what? If you're a brother and don't know your identity, as soon as people start to say, that's not God, you're like, yeah, I don't know if it is God. He will only come as we establish our ministry first unto Him. And as we establish our ministry unto Him, it's by His might and by His strength that He will do what He wants to do. What encourages me so much about this is it was His idea. And the fun thing about Him being, being His idea is that, guess what? No one sustains it but him. And I believe we have a role in that. Do not get me wrong. But our role is this, is that we say, Father, we set our eyes on this one thing. And as we set our eyes on this one thing, which is him, he tells us what to go and do. Because the reality is we could formulate a great Christian plan with lots of you know, good Christian strengths and talents, but he doesn't want that because he says, I use the weak things to confound the wise. He says, by my spirit, not by strengths, 
not by abilities. And so you look at revival, and often it's these people who are so unqualified, but yet they have this one thing, and their one thing is come Jesus at any cost. At any cost. And God just like, And then the sound of revival is carried through worship. Why is it carried through worship? Because it's all about Him. And as I was, I was, I was doing this message, and I, I, I had this, and then I had Peter in my mind the whole time. And I'm like, how does this all correlate? And so as I began to think and pray about Peter, you know, Peter was the one who God was going to build his church upon. And <clears throat> Peter is also the same person who was, um, Jesus told him he was going to deny him three times. And Peter being the guy, I mean, Peter is the perfect example of like, I'm Peter, like, I'm going to do this thing. Like, everybody, like, Jesus would ask a question. Peter was always the one like, oh, I know the answer. I know the answer. Like, he was the dude who thought he knew it, you know. And he was, like, so zealous. And I love that he's so zealous. But the, the reality is when Jesus is like, Peter's like, the Lord says you guys are all going to forsake me. Jesus, or Peter's like, I'll never forsake you. Jesus is like, yeah, you're actually going to forsake me three times. <laughs> and you can see Peter just like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and so here Peter is, and Jesus is in the garden, and the guards come from him, and here's Peter like, I'm going to prove myself to God that I will never forsake him. So the guards come after Jesus to restrain him, and he gets his knife, and it just whoosh, chops his ear off. <laughs> Peter's like, yeah going to forsake you now. I just chopped his ear off. <laughs> uh, Jesus, I'm on the A team. Remember, you're going to build your church upon this rock, you know. <laughs> and so Peter's like, whoo. <laughs> I love the way, actually, I don't remember how it says, but the passion says something about Peter that's hilarious, and I forgot how they said it. So anyways, um, so here Peter is, and, and he cuts off the ear, and then Jesus is taken away, and then we know the story. The rooster crows three times, and lo and behold, Peter has forsaken Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine how Peter felt? Now, I fully believe Peter had great intentions. I fully believe Peter wanted God and fully wanted to represent him. But the reality is, in Peter's strength, he didn't have the ability to do it. And so here Peter is. He denied Jesus three times. And then he's locked up in a room. And, and this is what I often believe we do is <clears throat> often I believe. Actually, I'll get into that in a minute. Here Peter is hiding out. He feels ashamed. He feels like, I denied Jesus three times. How can he build his church upon me? I'm a failure. You know, you could think of all the thoughts that he's having in his mind. Disciples are fishing. Jesus appears to them. Peter dives in the water to go see Jesus. Yet, I'm sure he still in his heart condemned himself. And Jesus comes up to Peter and says, Hey, Peter, do you... Agape me. Well, I'll say it in the English versions. He says, Jesus, or Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, God, you know everything. I love you. And he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? He's like, now Peter's like, oh, like it's like, he's like, oh, cut to the heart. He's like, yes, I love you, Lord. And he says, then feed my sheep, Okay. But the way that can be translated is this, is, Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Peter, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. What the heck does agape and phileo mean? <laughs> agape is the unconditional love of God. Phileo 
is considered brotherly affection. Okay, so remember, how is the Spirit going to come? It's not going to come through brotherly strength. I think Peter had great intentions. I think he had great passion. I think he had great love for Jesus. But the reality is, Peter wasn't going to see what he was going to see through his own abilities. He was going to see what God had, had called him to be through God's ability within him. And so... <clears throat> Here Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not calling you to phileo me. I'm calling you to agape me. But the only way you're going to agape me is if my agape love abides in you. Because your brotherly strength is not enough to see what I have called you to be. It's going to take me inside of you to become all that I've called you to be. <clears throat> and so... With that, I believe, why did Jesus do it three times? Because I believe Jesus was reconciling Peter to the first thing that he called him to be. You know, when Jesus had told Peter, hey, on this rock I will build you, it's, Jesus said this. He says, wow, good job, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my spirit did. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit. We have to realize that what God has called us to be individually in a, as a house is beyond our own abilities. Meaning you can fight as hard as you want, but it's not going to come through your fight. It's going to come through what he said about you and through his spirit inside of you. And this is so important because with what God wants to do, it's impossible for us. And what God wants to do is him inside of you, not you trying to work your way into a place where you can get what he's called you to be because it's only going to come through his ability inside of you. And so in Hebrews 3, I want to read Hebrews 3 and we're going to end. Man, it's late. <clears throat> I didn't realize it was almost 5. Is this making sense? Yeah. Hebrews 3. Verse 7, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Oh, this is why the Holy Spirit says, If you would listen to his voice this day, everyone say this day, don't make him angry by hardening your hearts like your ancestors did during the day of their rebellion when they were tested in the wilderness. There your father tested me and tried my patience even though they saw my miracles for 40 years, they still doubted me. This ignited my anger with that generation. And I said about them, they wander in their hearts just like they do with their feet. And they refuse to learn my ways. My heart grieved over them, so I declared they will never enter into my calming rest of my spirit. Everyone say, my spirit. <clears throat> What does this have to do with all of this? <clears throat> it's from our heart that God speaks and we see transformation. And in order to position our hearts for what he wants to do, it's actually from a place of rest that we receive what he wants to do in our lives. So what I'm saying is it doesn't matter if you, now hear, hear what I'm saying. You can pray all day, but if you're praying from a place of a lack of faith, you're not going to see anything and you're going to find yourself disheartened. It's not from a place of striving that we see his work done. It's a place of striving into entering his rest. What is his rest? It's that he has spoken a word 
and by us partnering and saying yes and amen to his word and standing upon what he said, we enter in to his rest where we believe and are confident that what he said he wants to do. Because so often we're calling down God as brothers rather than sons and daughters. As sons and daughters, you know he's going to show up. As sons and daughters, you stand in expectation of who he is. As brothers and sisters, you act like orphans to get and compete with giftings and talents to see God come. But as sons and daughters, you know your identity and you say, Dad's He's my God. He's going to show up and he's going to do everything he's called me to do in my life. And I stand in confidence, not by my abilities, but by his strength in me. Revival's coming now. <laughs> because what happens is, is <clears throat> so often God speaks a word. And we say, yes, God. And then he speaks a word. And, and if we don't get in the right heart, heart posture, I believe we'll go from two places. We'll go into striving. And striving will lead us into, I, we can't get here, so that leads to hiding. What did Peter do? This is the rock that I'm going to build my house. Okay, now i got to prove I am the rock. i got Peter. And I'm going to chop off someone's ear. Because I'm, I'm passionate. And it is in his own strength he's striving to get what God's already said he is. And so he's striving, and then all of a sudden, in his own strength, he's trying to fight. And then he finds himself not being able to get to that place. So what does he do? He finds himself locked up. What did Adam and Eve do? You're made in my image. You're my sons and daughters. All of a sudden, the enemy comes. Hey, did God really say this? Oh, no. We need to eat something. We need to work ourselves into what God already called us to do. All of a sudden, they eat of the, of the apple and, or the fruit, and all of a sudden, what do they find themselves do, doing? They're working and striving to make themselves right, and then what are they doing? They're hiding from God. What I'm saying is, it's not our own strength that's going to sustain us. It's his word over our lives, and it's us placing our hearts before the very presence of God and saying, Father, come. I have to have more of you. Thank you that I'm a son and a daughter. And as we position our hearts in a place of his presence, he deposits what he wants to do in our lives. And every step of the way, we say yes and amen to what he has already done and what he's already said. And because of that, our heart is in a place and rest. And when I say rest, it's not a lack of not doing anything. It's a place of expectation. It's a place of expectation. Our expectation is from what he said and what he's done. And our hearts can't grow hard in that place because we're the, before the presence of God. I so sense God is preparing us for something beyond what we could ever think or imagine. And I think he's getting us in the right heart posture. I know Daniel said, like, had this dream and, and correlated it with that. But I really believe the transition that he is getting us into is that he is building the house. And just as he started to build the house, what often God starts by grace, we try and sustain by works. And what I'm saying is, we can't work our way into what he wants to do. We can only simply position our heart in a posture that says, this is what God said. And we're going to position our hearts to believe it. And we're going to position our hearts that he's the only one who can fulfill it and sustain it. So guess what? If you show up and you're not passionate and you don't, you, you don't be bummed out on yourself, you remember, oh, God, this was your idea. 
So if it's your idea, you got to make it happen. Is that making sense? All right, I'm going to wrap this up. <laughs> so what I want to pray is... I want to pray that, you know, David had the right idea to get the presence back into Israel. But part of it was David's idea and how he was going to do it. I think, I feel like some of us are looking at what God has done in the past and saying, all right, let's just apply it here. What I'm saying is revival, what he wants to do, I really feel is so different than what he's ever done here. And so what I'm saying with that is there's not a cut and paste. It's a positioning of the heart to say, how can we, how can we partner with you? Because <laughs> I fully believe he's going to build this house. And I believe he's building it. And I'm just seeing like, just like brick by brick. And I'm so encouraged by what he's doing. This is like, I'm like really encouraged by what he's doing. Like really encouraged. But I want us to realize it's by his strength. And so far, the things that you see on this stage and the way that we've gotten into this building has been God. Like, there's a prophetic journey that we've gone on with God, and it's like, and what I'm saying is, the journey only gets more dependent upon Him. <laughs> Whatever it looks like, it gets more dependent. The way we grow up in Christ is we become more dependent upon Him. And so wherever He's taking us to is going to require more of our hearts of just saying yes. <laughs> A lot of times we say, yes, it's going to look like this, this, this. No, he just wants the yes. And so I want us to position our hearts for one thing, which is yes. So I'm going to end it with this. On three, we're going to say yes, and then we'll say amen, and we'll be done. <laughs> All right. My voice is dead, so not my, my, not my strength, but by your spirit. Okay. <laughs> All right. So on three, we'll say yes, and on three, we'll say amen. One, two, three. Yes! And on three, we'll say amen. One, two, three. Amen! Bless you guys. Y'all have an amazing week. If you need prayer, come up.